Well, welcome back wherever you are, wherever you're bunkered down. This is episode 42 of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm Hugh Rimmington. I'm very much the hack with the Professor Peter Van Onselen. And it seems as if we have got more or less as a country to where a lot of medical experts were saying two weeks ago we should have got too faster. But it seems we're kind of getting close to those points. Yeah, look, it does, doesn't it? And the finger, you know, fingers crossed here that even though we're a little bit later than where some people would have liked, that we're here early enough that we will avoid the curve following in the direction of some of those countries that we're just seeing such horrible results from overseas. We're not going to end up where a Singapore or a South Korea or certainly a Hong Kong managed to get to, but we clearly, with fingers crossed, look like we're not going to copy the Spains or the Italy's, or indeed, wow, what about the US with the direction that they now seem to be going? That's That's got to be a concern. Well, certainly when you look at uh, Anthony Fauci, who's been probably the uh, the clearest voice on this, the uh, national director of the Institute for Infectious Diseases and a sort of a, a, an absolute god in the world of infectious diseases and immunology, a warning of 100 to 200,000 deaths across the United States before mm. this thing is over. Um, we might get to the United States in a little bit more detail later on. But um, probably because things are moving so quickly, it's not the time to bullet point every single measure that's being taken. They're happening at state and federal levels. What do you think, though, have been the most significant shifts you've seen in the last few days? Well, I think the biggest shift has been the recognition around social distancing uh, by the government to start with. And then, you know, presumably, hopefully with not too much of a time lag, uh, getting picked up in the community. So, you know, we, we saw the Prime Minister saying, hey, 70 or over, don't go out. It's not a requirement, but that's in your best interest. We saw all those scenes at different beaches, but we now have different states doing different compulsory measures, which are important there. So from a community perspective, I think that's been the most significant thing. But in terms of containing the virus, it's got to be the moves, don't you think? around what's happening with people internationally. Stopping the bloody cruise ships from disembarking, like the Ruby Princess, that was an absolute failure of, of the federation between Commonwealth and states. But international airports, people having to now go into isolation in hotels, rather than just, like we've talked about this, Hugh, you were at the vanguard of this, rather than just rocking up, getting handed a piece of paper and jumping in a taxi and infecting it on the way to God knows where, doing God knows what with no oversight, We've now got you know, the military and the police working together, people going into hotels, which at least is providing some comfort for those hotels financially. But also it's making sure, hopefully, uh, that there are fewer cracks uh, in international arrivals because that's where the virus has been spreading most from. That's the thing that I look back at and think, wow, even notwithstanding some of the failures around social isolating at the individual level within the country, if the borders had been locked down in that way earlier, and cruise ships hadn't done what the Ruby Princess did, then the numbers would be so much less than they are now. Yes, and a key point there is also not letting you come back into the country and then get on another domestic flight and go off to, oh, you know, is it ever. through the major ports to other sort of other cities and, and regional centres. Uh, although, we're, we've, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, we've been contacted here at uh, 10 by uh, a woman who's stuck in a hotel room in Sydney with uh, two kids, one of them a fussy eating toddler, and she's going up the walls and oh, you uh, can complaining imagine. bitterly about the conditions that she's in and that she feels like she's, she's been put in prison, that she's not a criminal and, and so on. So you can, there is in a lot of cases this kind of acute personal discomfort. But, 
and, and I, I sympathize for a woman locked in a room like those conditions. However, this is the thing, you know, so there's a wider picture and I think people are slowly yeah. getting the message through. So, uh, well, there's just no alternative, is there? I mean, that's the problem. You know, it's sort of, I guess what might happen as a result of this is perhaps uh, some Australians who are wanting to come back to Australia might think twice about it, depending on where they're coming from. Because there's plenty of people overseas that I'm hearing about who are Australian citizens, but they essentially work and live abroad. But in this crisis, they're choosing to come home. Uh, maybe this will have an impact on them if you, you know, <laughs> if you're not at immediate risk, but you're but you're going to have to come back and spend 14 days in isolation somewhere, particularly in a situation like that. I, I do feel for, for anyone in that situation. Yeah, so you're in two different cases. Having lived overseas a couple of times for extended periods myself, they, uh, which you rent, one is that uh, do you come home if it means giving up your job, your livelihood, you know, mm. everything, you know, to come back to a place where it's going to be harder to find jobs depending on what you do? Um, or do you hang out where you are or what happens if you have in fact lost your job as we saw during yeah. the global financial crisis for example a lot of people working in finance in new york and hong kong and london um those jobs are getting cleaned out and and a lot of people basically at that point had little option but to come back so if you've lost your job overseas and particularly if you don't have access to any kind of welfare pickup because you're not a citizen of those other countries uh you know can you get back is it too late you know, there are, there are so many individual stories that are difficult. I, 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 I saw two things at the weekend, which I thought were interesting, and I'd love to get your views on it. One was Matthias Corman was put up on Insiders uh, mm. as the government spokesman. I saw David Spears a couple of days earlier was, was being interviewed. Someone said, who have you got on the show? And he said, actually, we don't know yet. So they fronted up, you know, Matthias <laughs> Corman, this kind of old reliable. Um, it was appalling. Uh, he said absolutely nothing. He doesn't answer questions. He runs through the, the talking points. It's hopeless. It's, an, it's a, you know, uh, no one wants to do the job, if, particularly if you haven't got a lot to say, but it, it was the opposite of informing the public about what actually is going on. It's a whole bunch of bromides that mean absolutely bloody nothing. But against that, I thought the Prime Minister on Sunday evening was, was probably the best I've seen him. He was not defensive. Mm. He was informative. He seemed more relaxed. He seemed to have grown into it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and, and it also seemed to be managing the fact of the, dis, you know, the, the disputes, the different positions that states take because the circumstances are different. He doesn't seem to see that as a personal threat to his own authority. He, seemed, you know, he seems to be managing that more easily as something which is inevitable. What, what, what's your sense of, of that? Yeah, look, I agree with that. I, I thought he was much clearer as well. I think he's getting better. I think he's been at his worst, actually, when he's done those evening briefings after National Cabinet because he has been so tetchy and looking tired and all the rest of it. But I thought uh, how he was on the Sunday night was him not only at his best more generally, but certainly at his best with some of those nighttime performances. Uh, and I think that's probably just a, a practice thing. He, he did sound tired and breathless at first. But we're still clear, uh, and that you know we've got to remember this, don't we? I mean, everybody's going through a lot at the moment. Uh, some people more than others, but in terms of leadership and decision making, boy, it would be a burden at the moment to be making those decisions. Whether we're critical of the way he acts or not, whether we think he's been slow or not, whether we think he can be belligerent or not, and he certainly can be, it would be a real weight on your shoulders. And don't forget, he's not exactly a long-term prime minister, uh, nor is he remotely proven as Prime Minister. I mean, if anything, sure, he proved his capacity to win an unwinnable election, no doubt about that, 
But then he also proved his incapacity for managing a crisis during the bushfire crisis with his whole Hawaiian adventure and belligerent return. So he's gone into this baptism of fire with not only a largely untested background, but where he's had a little bit of testing, he's failed, uh, in my view. And yet, I think he is getting steadily better. And I think that the decision-making is getting steadily better as well. Australia had a slight advantage to the rest of the world because we were a bit behind what we were witnessing overseas. So we should do better than a lot of those parts of the world. But I do think within the construct of how he's performed as a leader, he is getting better. And we'll see where he goes. But Hugh, I want to ask you something, whether it's now or a little bit later. I'm keen to know what you think about whether there's the potential here that Australia becomes a multifaceted response to this crisis. And what I mean by that is we are such a big country geographically. New South Wales at the moment is the epicentre of this. Is it possible that we see a scenario where this gets under control in other states where borders are getting locked down but, for example, it becomes, and pardon my French here, but it becomes an absolute shit show in New South Wales, for example, um, where we both reside. Yeah. But it does okay elsewhere. Well, look, I think it's reasonable for there to be a patchwork, a piebald approach. Uh, you could see that initially, and this is a problem for Scott Morrison, uh, you know, at, at an earlier stage in this journey, when he was trying to sort of produce a national approach, he was plainly getting a different pushback from different premiers. Some wanted to go faster than others. We've heard from both the chief medical officer and his deputy separately saying quite clearly the same thing, that the greatest concern at the moment is about community transmissions, particularly in Sydney, to a lesser degree in Melbourne, certainly in Melbourne, and a couple of other little hotspots around the place. But their focus is really on these community transmissions, not obviously linked to overseas travellers that are breaking out in Sydney. The numbers in Sydney are worse than anywhere else. Now, if you're living in Eramunga, if you're living in Panawanaka, if you're living in, you know, Marie in, in South Australia, it, the prospects of getting hit by coronavirus are vanishingly small. And over time, uh, if these controls work well, then that should be the case. And so two things, it's from, from talking to people over, over the weekend and before, mm. two things come to it is where the lift back is going to come from. One is that there's a realisation that they have dodged the bullet in large parts of the country because simply they didn't, you know, away from the major cities, uh, it didn't emerge as a major problem. So after suitable watchfulness, uh, then people might start to be able to resume their economic activities and certainly might ease a bit of their social distancing. And the other thing, which will come with time, is that there are three, I've spent a lot of time talking to doctors and medics in recent days, there are three things that are going to see the end of this as a crisis at the point of the end. One is mm. plainly a vaccine, but that's some distance off. The other is the delivery of antivirals, which have some, which, which, which proven to work. Uh, we, we haven't yet got a confirmed sense that any of these uh, absolutely does work. So there's been various suggestions about malaria uh, drugs and other things that might work, but there's, that's not yet come. But that was how HIV AIDS was really managed. Uh, not a vaccine, but antivirals working better to slow that, that process. Then the other thing is, is the business of people who have come through the other side. And they're going to become very valuable to our economy in many ways. And that is that if you've got it at a low level, you've been tested, you've been cleared, so you've gone through the process, many of them with little or no symptoms, you then become really valuable because the best available evidence at the moment 
is that you won't get it again and you cannot spread it. So there's some mystery about how long you can still shed the virus even when you seem to have come through it. They've been pushing some of those dates out up to 37 days, I saw at the weekend was one. But there is a point at which you're not going to be a danger to yourself or others. Now, those people, this is the building of that herd immunity ultimately, but those mm. people become super valuable because they can go to work, uh, they can uh, go to restaurants, they can be the lifeblood, but they may need to be able to be certified in a way, have some sort of unbreakable thing like a driver's license, which enables them to break social distancing. So that if they're stopped because they're in, in a group or they're doing other things, they've got these passes because that's how a bit of blood starts to go through the arteries of the economy again as, these, as people start to come out the other side. Yeah, look, it's so many unknowns um, in terms of the way that this all goes down. But what strikes me about it as well is, as I sort of sit here in increasing isolation is that I think it's actually going to, I think this crisis is, is going to also hit so much harder in a class war sense as well. Like I've seen some interesting articles about this in recent days where people are talking increasingly about, you know, pe people who are inconvenienced by what's happened versus people who are out and out losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, needing all the measures that are getting focused on. And what do you think about the divide between the economy and health? Because that to well, me well, is Just one. before we get to that, I really want class war, powerful words, PVO. Tell me more. Mm. Well, I just think, uh, I, I think there are people that are finding this inconvenient, let me put it that way, versus completely life altering. So for example, it is inconvenient to be wedged in your house with your family, all trying to make it work in a sort of almost, almost comical way, you know, with people balancing everything that they've got to do and, and you know, remote uh, attempts at continuing your job, even perhaps having your job sliced back a little bit, but still perfectly functional, worrying about your mortgage or your payments that you have, but not actually having them threatened in a way where they've been stripped from, from you instantaneously, uh, like are happening to a lot of people as well. And, and that scenario is, is, is inconvenient with worry, okay? And so there's mental health issues, there's wellbeing issues, but it is not the absolute coalface of this. The coalface of this are the poor bastards in the queues at Centrelink who literally don't have savings, uh, who don't have the capacity to pay rent even potentially, which is why the Prime Minister's moratorium on rent I think is so important because those people are literally, and, and any one of us could become those people in a heartbeat if our sector goes down all of a sudden. But those people are looking at this and saying this is an economic crisis, not a health crisis. That they almost don't give a damn if they get coronavirus, as long as they're in the age bracket that the numbers are with them. They're thinking, I've got to get out there and I've got to make enough money so that I don't get kicked out of my house and, and be completely destroyed in terms of my, my life. Now, those people, uh, which any of this could become at any moment, those people are seeing this as an economic crisis, not as a health crisis. Yeah, it, and the old line about it's a recession when someone you know loses their job, it's a depression when you lose your own. I think that mm. definitely applies. One of the things which really struck me, something that you would not have conce conceived of six months ago, is that we essentially have established socialist concepts, uh, big government, oh, yeah. uh, mass debt, mass spending on welfare, 
uh, essentially the reduction of things like landlord rights. You can't evict your tenant if they're not paying. Uh, these are ideas that have come from a coalition government that would have been inconceivable. And that alone tells you how much the world has yeah. shifted, now, how deep on, this is. On that, Hugh, that is a big topic. And I'd love to actually unpick it a little bit. We've got to take a quick break, though. Let's come back and talk about that because, boy, isn't that fascinating. The Liberal Party, Scott Morrison, instituting the kind of measures uh, that they would normally be running around waving placards ideologically opposed to. Talk to you in a minute. Over the next 10 days, 10Play is fast-tracking exclusive new shows to turn your isolation into a nice-elation. First up is Peter Hellyer and Lisa McCune in new How to Stay Married. And new drunk history from Australia's greatest storytellers. But wait, there's more. Every single day, we'll bring you exclusive new content. Ten shows in ten days. Only on Ten Play. Welcome back to episode 42 of The Professor and the Hack, PBO. Uh, Professor Peter Van Olsen, if you're just joining us, um, you are starting on a, a theme which has been possibly historically what will be the most significant element of this other than the actual health crisis and the lives lost, and that is the embracing of core socialist precepts, the kind of things that would be to the left of Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders <laughs> by... Uh, by coalition prime minister and scott morrison look that's right uh, and and uh, i mean you know they say that you know necessity is the mother of all inventions here but in this case it's the mother of all backflips by liberals isn't it because this is all about intervention in the market not letting the free market rip because this pandemic just doesn't allow for that both in terms of the health uh, details that need to follow but also in terms of the economic consequences of what we're seeing transpire and uh, they are embracing any and every option it would seem uh, when it comes to trying to do something to alleviate the economic damage of this. What interests me about it is not that they're just willing to do it in the short term in the moment of the crisis. I mean, that is interesting of itself. What I'm fascinated about, though, is where it goes from here. When we look back on this in three months, six months, 12 months, or indeed in a decade, has it profoundly shifted the ideological landscape? You know, we've had this unabound capitalism and privatisation and free market principles roaring along for a long time. And even when there's been dissent about it, you know, the Labor side of the major party divide have essentially been coming along well and truly for the right. Does this now well, they seem... Led it. They led it in well, the 80s. Very true. Yeah, very good point. And, and at the other side of it, though, what happens here now? Do we have a scenario where the Liberals lead the socialist revival now out the other side, like what you're referring to, Hugh, with Hawke and Keating's embrace of microeconomic reform in the 80s. And as a result, do we have a, a, an almost bipartisan equivalent uh, going forward in that direction? Hawke and Keating got rapturous applause for embracing free market principles at a time where Australia was perceived to need it. And then they got rewarded electorally for it, even though elements of their base had a problem with it. Do we have a scenario now where Scott Morrison and his team are embracing those principles, not just in the crisis, but in the years that follow as part of a reform away from the free market? And if that happens, do they get rewarded for it? And is Labor left on the left of them 
to wonder how to respond to that. Look, if that happens, what then also happens internationally? Is this something that even well, takes let, hold over there? Well, let's 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 unpick that. One of the things we've mm. got to remember about Hawke-Keating reforms in the 1980s was that uh, they were a Labour Party doing it, whereas the uh, the torchbearers for that were people like Thatcher and Reagan, yep. who were plainly from conservative politics, and yet they they had this kind of odd meeting of the minds across that sort of ideological divide. So yes, could it happen again? It, it could do. Uh, the two things that seem interesting to me about it. One is that um, Morrison came to, uh, well, was affirmed in power in the election in last May, really with no agenda to speak of, uh, but with essentially a promise, implicit and explicit, that he would be a pragmatic manager of what was going on and that he would uh, be a good manager of the economy. That was essentially what was on offer. Well, he's been nothing if not pragmatic when faced with this um, crisis because he hasn't attempted any ideological uh, the market will decide type notion. He has dived deep. So has Frydenberg right alongside him, the treasurer, yep. into, this, into this world. And I would say that right now, most Australians, for the, all the fact that people are struggling uh, on one level or another, in some cases deeply struggling, uh, they would be grateful for those massive, you know, multi-multi-billion dollar interventions in the market to try to soften the blow a little bit. So in Having the short- said that, though, can they, can they get on with it, though, please? That's, that's a criticism, isn't it, Hugh? I mean, I, I think they would be grateful. You're right. But, God, they'd be more grateful still if they fast-forwarded on it because we've got another month to go before most of this stuff rolls out the door. That's true. And you know, a lot of those payments are not going to happen until the end of April. That's, uh, that's true. There are a lot of anxious moments. I think the, the thought that people aren't going to be evicted from their apartments. You know, I, I know of a case of three people. One's a senior chef and, and two others are working as, uh, in the restaurant trade has stopped absolutely dead cold. Uh, and they've just moved into a uh, share house. And so they are, um, you know, res- young in their 20s. Uh, with not sort of great loads of capital or sort of family money behind them or any of those other kinds of little things are just essentially like most Australians. And so they've got a long wait to get to that money. It feels like a long wait. So the Mm. fact that they'll be protected from evictions is is a key thing. The the other thing is, is that what we have to remember in all this uh, warm embrace of the new socialist future is (laughs) that there was a reason why the great reforms were established in the 1980s. And that's because the other system uh, was clogging up. There's high personal income tax rates, you know, under Menzies and so on. And, and across the world in Britain, they were enormously high in the 1970s. Uh, it wasn't good for industry. All the protections in the world ultimately tend to clog up your economy. So the tension between a clogged economy where there's supports built into it and a free economy where there are a few remains the underlying political drama of our age. It's just that the pendulum has swung in a particular way at the moment. I think it will swing back because high big government interventions are very hard to sustain over a long time without economic damage. Mm, so I said it's having a, a chair in <laughs> politics. But uh, so at some stage, it's going to go back. What, what do you think about Anthony Albanese's uh, position, his role in this, labour in general. Uh, plainly, the states are working, you know, da- Daniel Andrews and, 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 and uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk have been working in this national cabinet. Um, what is the role for labour federally 
and how are they playing their hand? Look, I, I actually feel for Anthony Albanese in this crisis, politically speaking, because I don't think he wants to play politics with it, not necessarily because he's all virtuous against doing so, but because I think he realises that the political implications for him of being seen to play politics with this issue are disastrous. I mean, this is a moment of crisis. Governments are supposed to do well in a crisis situation, politically speaking, because the country tends to want want to galvanise behind them and leaders can look like leaders and oppositions get shut out and all the rest of it. But I feel for Anthony Albanese because I don't think it's appropriate that Parliament is just gone for six months, never to be seen again. I don't think it's appropriate that committees are essentially gone for their oversight. And I certainly don't think it's appropriate that when they have this national cabinet, that there isn't a voice for the federal opposition within it, even though they don't technically have statutory responsibilities in the role that they're in. So he's wedged here because he doesn't want to play politics. You know, they passed the stimulus package despite having both stimulus packages through the parliament when it did sit, uh, despite having reservations about various elements of it, in particular around the superannuation changes, but they passed it anyway. And they want to quietly be involved and offer views. They disagree with some of the elements that are uh, a part of not just the economic package, but also some of the health measures that have been taken. But I don't think he wants to stand there with a megaphone via the media and just shout and attack the government of the day just because it looks bad for an opposition leader at the moment. But what other bloody choice does he have right now? He's not part of the national cabinet where he can offer views quietly and privately there aren't very strong communication lines between the PM and the opposition leader is my understanding. Uh, and there so are he, or are not? There are not. There are yeah. not is my understanding. So as a result, uh, he's really only got one option here, or maybe two. He can try to go through back channels to state Labor premiers, I suppose, but that feels a bit underhanded and you can imagine the story that would come out if that you know, went against him. Or he's got the media. He's got the fourth estate because he doesn't even have parliament anymore. But when he uses the fourth estate, and you know what it's like as a journalist, you, the story is politically what is going on today. Here's what the government says. Here's all the elements that your viewers need to understand and hear about. And here's a couple of grabs from the opposition who inevitably takes issue with some of what's being done. They, they, they just look like they're the painful voice of dissent when they might have a valid point, but they've got no other way to get it out. Yes, I mean, that would be to suppose that the political process uh, when Parliament is sitting is necessarily one full of constructive engagement between the opposition <laughs> and the government, yeah. um, which, it, which it's not. But I, mean, uh, but I mean, one of the things about it, the old rule is, is that if, if people can't talk to you on the inside, they'll talk to you from the outside. And so th there well, is... Well, that's the National problem. Cabinet, isn't it, Hugh? That's the issue of the National Cabinet. Yes, and I mean, the National Cabinet, by and large, has held up pretty well. It is held up pretty well because uh, the states have asserted their own sovereignty within that process. So that became mm. awkward for Scott Morrison at a certain point because he thought, well, I'm the Prime Minister, I run all this, the states, you know, I've been very magnanimous and I've brought them into this National Cabinet process. Uh, and then after a couple of days in, it was quite clear that particularly uh, <laughs> yeah. Victoria and New South Wales wanted to go much harder than Morrison wanted to go. And that was awkward for him. Uh, and he was asked that question about whether the process was fracturing. And he had to, at that point, give up the pretense that he was the guy in charge of the nation and kind of essentially giving a top-down instructions to the states. 
you know, he, he had to say, well, look, states are going to do what they're going to do. And so, and that has led to part of that mixed messaging we've talked about because states have got their own view. They've got their own specific issues and they differ from state to state. In, in, a, in a sense, that's the strength of federalism. Uh, and they were asserting their own roles on things like school closures and so on. It got very messy, but it seems as though they've all edged their way closer back towards a, a common understanding of where that is. And that's probably good for the country. Uh, you know, I would have thought, look, it's, it's far too early to, to look, and it's probably entirely wrong to look to the political fallout from this. But this is an opportunity for Scott Morrison to demonstrate that he is a grand final player, uh, not one who just got lucky mm. on a couple of home and away games, that he's one who can take the big issue and can, and can command it and manage it and give enough freedom to premiers. <coughs> I paused for a cough, but I promise I did it into my elbow. Um, well, now, so I'm is, all of a sudden very glad that we're remote, Hugh. Yes, indeed, indeed. It is. So, um, you know, it's, it's too early to be, to, to be said. I thought he stumbled a bit at the beginning, but I think he's been looking a bit better. Uh, what's your take on that, Pivia? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I think people know that I'm more than prepared to be critical of Scott Morrison when I think he's had failings, and I think he's had his fair share of failings in a relatively <laughs> short space of time, other than, you know, obviously winning an election. However, uh, he does look like he's growing into the job. He's not shrinking into it. And for a while there at the beginning, it looked like he might be shrinking into the job. Now, having said all of that, though, ultimately, how he is perceived is just, in my view at least, going to come down to how we do. You know, Australians quite rightly expect their prime minister and their country to do a lot better than a lot of these countries that are doing badly, but we don't necessarily have to come first out of this like a Singapore or a Hong Kong. But as long as we're somewhere between that and closer to the Singapore-Hong Kong model than the disasters coming out of Europe, I think that all credit goes to Scott Morrison, even if there's been difficulties along the way. But this will be something that we can only judge in hindsight. You know, how many Australians die from this? How does our economy, our economy have itself positioned at the end of this to be able to recover uh, in reasonable time? These are the big questions. And I look, I mean, maybe this is the chance to do this, Hugh. I look at the US and, boy, that to me is really going to be the interesting part of where the global fallout from the coronavirus ultimately lands is what happens in the US. Where do they land? Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's great scope for destabilisation across Europe at the moment. It, just Italy and Spain, between the two of them, have recorded nearly 1,500 deaths in the last 24 hours. Spain now... Uh, running at a higher death rate than Italy. So where the destabilization from all of that lands in Europe, uh, mm. we will see with time. Uh, but the United States, they have obviously a presidential election at the end of the year. We've had President Trump saying he wanted uh, the churches all to be packed on Easter, that he wanted the social distancing uh, to be gone by then so we can get on with it. The cure shouldn't be worse than the disease, he said. Well, they have uh, now said that they're going to uh, push out the uh, social distancing rules until the end of April. That's plainly going to shut down Easter. But then if you look at it at another way of analysing the rat cunning of Trump, uh, he may have known that that was completely unrealistic. But what he has done is he's reminded uh, the mass block of votes in the United States that are Christian conservative uh, that he was on their side. The father fuddy daddies have got in there and stopped their church services over Easter. Well, it wasn't him at the front of that. Um, his actual approval rating has been edging up. 
he still remains more disapproved of than approved of. He's, he's in negative territory. He is further behind at this time in the cycle than any other U.S. president than, uh, other than Jimmy Carter. And, of course, Jimmy Carter was bundled out on his ear at an election by Ronald Reagan um, in 1980. But, um, uh, or at the end of 1979. But the, uh, so what we've got uh, now is uh, a situation where Trump is not evidently being punished for his massive mixed messages over there. And uh, Joe Biden is sort of stumbling around a little bit uh, in some of his appearances, which would raise concerns mm. even with those who, you know, might support Biden. So um, it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out all in, all in oh, not yeah. that long amount of time. Well, and, and what do you, I mean, can they even have an election uh, in the normal course of events in the midst of this crisis, depending on where it is at by the time we get towards the end of this year. Uh, well, the, they'll, be, they'll be edging back again into the northern winter because they have the yep. election in November. So you'll be starting to come back up again. If they have a dip off, if it follows the flu cycle and it starts to dip off through the northern summer, uh, then uh, if there's no vaccine and no effect of antivirals, then the risk is that it will still be... It, still be around and, and still is starting to build up again for another winter season as they go to the polls. We're far too far away from it, but uh, this whole story and the implications for all of us is a long way to run yet. It does, Hugh. We're out of time, though, but uh, we should probably... Um, well, we're going to try to do this more often, I think, now, uh, as, as this crisis keeps unfolding, but we also probably need to apologise to those who choose to listen for the quality of it. Uh, hopefully they're interested in the content, even if uh, the audio issues will persist. Yes, it's the nature of the times, and uh, if you are listening, we do send our very best wishes and anxious times, and look forward to talking to you again soon. See you soon. Peter. Likewise. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Fearing the apocalypse? Brush up on your survival skills with every episode of Australian Survivor and the best of US Survivor on 10Play now.